For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Well, breaking news from KOSU Indigenous Affairs reporter Allison Herrera found Governor Stitt has hired outside counsel to advance contested gaming compacts against four Oklahoma tribes. The issue stems from compacts signed by Stitt in 2020. When asked about the legal counsel, neither legislative leaders nor the tribes knew anything about it. Ryan, would the gov- why would the governor secretly hire outside counsel? Well, that's a very good question. I, you know, I think that um, there, there's a lot to unpack here. First and foremost, Governor Stitt is in the middle of a re-election campaign. It's, it's a hotly contested, the most contested, uh, most competitive uh, gubernatorial election in, in maybe 20 years in the state of Oklahoma. All five of the largest tribes in the state have come out and endorsed uh, his opponent, Joy Hoffmeister. Um, and that's after <clears throat> four years of nearly constant battling with the tribes over a range of tribal sovereignty issues in the state of Oklahoma. So you've got the governor doubling down on his battle with the tribes, um, but he's also doubling down on his battle with the legislature. Uh, you know, this is this is a governor who enjoys a Republican supermajority uh, in both chambers, yet you know, a lot of his key initiatives haven't moved, and a lot of that's because of his relationships or lack of relationships with the legislature. So when you see the speaker caught off guard by this, by the pro temp, Senate pro temp caught off guard by this, that's that's a big deal. And one of the reasons that it's a big deal is because they recently passed legislation that requires the governor to come to them to get approval uh, to spend money for legal or litigation costs related to tribal uh, issues in the state of Oklahoma. And so they're saying, where did this money come from? The governor's spokesperson is saying that the governor spent money that was outside of that, so it was allowed. But, you know, I think, number one, if even if the governor had a legal argument here, he doesn't. Uh, uh, even if the governor had the legal authority to do it, I think that that's questionable. Um, there is kind of like this remaining issue of, why didn't you find somebody in Oklahoma? You know, are, are there not any Oklahoma law firms uh, that would do this? Maybe it's he couldn't find a law firm that would be willing to take it. Uh, but it's, you know, here to hear these, uh, you know, states rights guys, Oklahoma first guys, uh, then going to DC and paying 800 to $1,200 an hour for some outside counsel. There are lawyers here in the state governor and, and I, I, you know, hire some, some hire somebody in the state, make, make one of these law firms top 10. Neva. Well, and that's right. And when you look at, uh, even in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, I mean, the kind of the crux of what the governor's trying to lay his cards on and believe that, <laughs> uh, that he can, uh, <coughs> have this uh, issue on the compacts go his way finally. The Supreme Court's ruled against him. Uh, He asked for a a rehearing, didn't happen. Um, And when you look back and this particular case that uh, Oklahoma spent a million and a half basically uh, on that, again with outside counsel, um, and that was more than double what the original estimate was. So as you say, the speculation that these two law firms, D.C. law firms, uh, their hourly rate somewhere between 800 and $1,200 an hour, we're talking about a pretty big tab. And obviously that's going to throw lawmakers off. I mean, to A, not know about it, B, not really know fully what the uh, uh, kind of the expected tab on this is going to be, and C, the fact that, again, uh, the governor appears to be doubling down on the entire issue of taking on the uh, uh, the, the uh, tribes. And so you're right, the backdrop is still the election. Uh, whether he started it now 
wanting to get things in motion uh, regardless of what happens on November 8th or what the thinking was. But uh, uh, to have everyone kind of lined up on the opposite side of where you are as you start down this path is not a very good place for any governor to be, regardless of party, regardless of circumstances. So I think that uh, I, I think it, it does pose the uh, the issue as you as you raise, Ryan, that lawmakers uh, don't like this. I mean, from any governor, they want transparency. They want an open dialogue. They want to communicate on these things. They don't want to be ambushed, <laughs> and they feel that way when someone walks up to up mm-hmm. to them with facts and and uh, materials, and they have no awareness of it whatsoever. So uh, we'll see if this uh, just simmers now for a little while and pops back up after the election or whether someone tries to fire a volley back across either direction mm-hmm. uh, here in the closing uh, uh, week of a campaign. Part of the um, you know part of the legislature not liking this, they disliked it so much initially that they went to the state Supreme Court. It was the it was the Republican Speaker of the House, the Republican Senate President Pro Temp that went to the state Supreme Court to ask the court, we don't think the governor has this uh, discretion to unilaterally execute compacts with tribes in the state of Oklahoma. Can you can you um, you know answer that question for us? And, and, and the, the court did. Yeah, they did, and they said the governor doesn't have that power. That's and so, right. And that's a matter of state law. Uh, and so, it's it's really surprising. And again, I come back to you know maybe you couldn't find a law firm in the state of Oklahoma that could say you know, that we're going to take this on because it's it's really it's this is a this is a legal argument built on the foundation of clouds. And so it's you know. Maybe you can find a D.C. lawyer that's willing to take $1,200 from you an hour just to go fight something and bill you until you get to the point where, you know, you're going to lose anyways. And maybe you couldn't find an Oklahoma lawyer that would be willing to do that. And when you have the Supreme Court saying that it is uh, these tribal gaming issues are going to be decided jointly between the legislative and executive branches. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's the legislature's uh, uh, duty to set the policy, and it's the executive branch's uh, uh, duty to execute the policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to not be in question by very many people, except the governor seems to be still taking issue with that, and we'll see where it goes from here. Candidates for state superintendent took part in their first and only debate. Oklahoma City's Fox 25 aired the event between Republican Ryan Walters and Democrat Gina Nelson. Neva, what stood out to you in the debate? Well, I think, first of all, it was uh, somewhat similar to the uh, gubernatorial debate. I mean, you have uh, you have these uh, uh, these two two races which have become the the races that everyone's focused on because they appear by all indication, polls and otherwise, to be the most competitive races out on the uh, uh, on, on the election ballot this year. And I think uh, you have uh, both sides basically kind of doubling down, trying to appeal to their constituency. But much like uh, Joy Hoffmeister in the gubernatorial debate, where she appeared to be trying to still move toward bringing across independents and maybe Republicans who would consider uh, crossing lines and uh, not voting a straight party or not voting a, a Republican in that particular race, I think we saw that a little bit uh, with uh, Gina Nelson and Ryan Walters. Ryan Walters embraced the governor. He's the governor's secretary of education. Uh, they have, uh, they're in lockstep on the issues that are important to them, school vouchers being at the forefront, one of the items that was hotly kind of mixed back and forth in the, in, uh, the debate. And I think you have Gina Nelson, uh, who is somewhat uh, lesser known, but is positioned to be the uh, uh, the extension of Joy Hoffmeister in the continuation of uh, 
the policies and inclinations in terms of education um, in the state of Oklahoma. So I, I thought it was, uh, I don't think anyone scored big home runs. I think it was just the natural kind of give and take. Much of what they say out on the campaign trail, there were a few exceptions to that of just kind of new points that they wanted mm-hmm. to kind of throw on the fire. But uh, all in all, I think the takeaway again is we have a debate for a very important race and virtually uh, a minuscule percentage of Oklahomans saw it, heard it, mm-hmm. or even read much about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that's the that's the point to me. Uh, these are these are serious races. They're important races. There is a lot of interest in it, and yet we're not uh, seeing the ability for the voters to really be able to easily access uh, an ability to see these candidates side by side like this debate uh, provided. Ryan. Well, the uh, the comparison between the Joy Hoffmeister, Kevin Stitt debate uh, a week or so back, I think is, is accurate in that you had Ryan Walters sticking to this national script of anti-wokeness, you know, telling everybody that there's pornography in schools, which, you know, by the way, if if you if you know anybody that are you know in public schools, you've, if you got you know students in public school, if you are um, you know a teacher or you know, support staff in public schools, those claims just are ridiculous. I mean, they you know they fall you know just flat because you know that this isn't going on. You know this you know what he's saying just isn't reality. But for a lot of voters that aren't directly connected to schools, I think that Walter's bet is that the national script, uh, you know, the the Joe Biden anti wokeness, there's pornography in schools, and we got to, you know, you know, make sure that you know everybody goes to the right bathroom, all that stuff. I think that that is his bet that um, in rural Oklahoma that that's going to persuade Republicans because I think he is trying to win this race predominantly with Republican votes that it's going to persuade Republicans in rural Oklahoma that that's more important than the voucher issue. And, and you know, that's really what this is going to come down to is can Ryan Walters make rural Oklahomans believe that all of that's more important than the voucher question? And, um, you know, Gina Nelson has made it very clear that she believes that vouchers kill rural schools and rural communities. And Ryan Walters and the governor have doubled down on, on the voucher plan. Um, you know, I, I'll just say that when, when you think about all of these things that get talked about, one of the things that gets missed as a parent of public school students is, you know, Gina Nelson says, we don't have a teacher shortage. We've got 30,000 teachers, certified teachers in the state of Oklahoma that aren't teaching and they're not teaching by choice. A lot of that has to do with this national rhetoric. And instead of talking about things like, you know, my son is at class in SAS, one of the, one of the best middle schools in the state of Oklahoma. Um, but we were doing his homework a couple of weeks ago and we couldn't find something. And I said, well, let's get the textbook out. Well, he couldn't get the textbook out because he has to leave his textbook at school because they share among classes. Mm-hmm. And so here it is, you know, one of the best middle schools in the state and kids are sharing textbooks and they can't take them home to do their homework. Um, you know, those are the things that I think parents of students would like to hear talked more about instead of, you know, the, the national dialogue and script that we get out of Ryan Walters. And I think you're right. I mean, it, this is a race where it is who turns out. And in rural Oklahoma, I think there's large uncertainty of whether Republicans were the vast majority of, uh, of uh, rural Oklahomans. Mm-hmm. When you look at registration, are registered Republicans. Uh, the message that he gave was one that does resonate with Republicans. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, the issue of vouchers uh, the question is, is that going to be a serious enough, compelling enough uh, issue with these folks that they're willing to break ranks, either not vote in that race, 
cross over and vote uh, uh, across party lines or something else. And the other factor in this is we have the airwaves being bombarded with negative, negative, negative here in the closing stretch. Nothing new in campaigns. But what mm-hmm. it does say is that it does point to the possibility of suppression of vote. I mean, folks finally get, uh, oftentimes they will tell you, I'm fed up, you know, it's already decided I'm not voting. Um, we saw in the primaries there was not a spike in, in turnout. It was a it was a what I would consider average to below average uh, primary season. And the question in this mid year midterm uh, for Oklahomans is: Will they see these races uh, important enough to come out? And mm-hmm. and you would think so when you have two United States Senate races, congressional races. And all of the statewide races, in addition to uh, courthouse and legislative races. So every election season is important. I think right now what everyone is battling is to try to make sure they can get a message that will be um, significant enough that they can get their folks to turn out on Election Day. In a twist to a story we talked about last week, a missing woman and her husband were arrested in Mexico. The couple were mentioned in debate for Oklahoma County District Attorney when Republican Kevin Calvey accused Democrat Vicki Behenna of being complicit in their disappearance and possible murder. Ryan, how does this change the discussion? Well, you know, everybody loves true crime podcasts these days. Uh, and so I, I think that that's, that's what this is quickly this, this turning into. That's what this sounds like. You know, it's like, you know, up next. next Get a scorecard. You know, you know, you know, next, next week, uh, twist in the story. You know, and that's exactly, I mean, it kind of reads like that. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, Kevin Calvey, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm sure that he doesn't, you know, hope that those people were dead. I don't, I don't believe that, but then all of a sudden they show up, um, and you know, the, the idea that Vicki Bahanna is complicit in murder, you know, that falls on its face, but he still is in a position to, you know, say that, you know, uh, Vicki filed, uh, documents for a rehearing that obviously at this point, you know, weren't accurate. Um, you know, and I, I think that, you know, Calvi is able to make, you know, score some uh, points on that uh, on that front. But it's important to point out on, on Vicky's defense that, number one, as a lawyer, you've got an obligation to present the best defense and representation for your client. And, you know, if your client comes to you with new evidence and you don't have any reason to believe that it's not, you know, uh, that it's that it's not fraudulent or something like that, you have an obligation to move that forward. The other thing is that you have an obligation of confidentiality. Um, she can't really talk about this case uh, the way that Kevin Calvey can talk about it. You know, Kevin can sit on the uh, on the sidelines here and throw rocks all day long, and Vicky and her spokesperson are really limited in what they can say in, in uh, Vicky's defense here because she has an obligation to this client, um, and you, know, you can't make your client's case active, ongoing case part of a political campaign without violating your ethics as an as an attorney. So, um, you know, and I think that you know. Kevin Calvey, he's a he's a smart lawyer. He gets that, and I think he understands that she's from a political gamesmanship uh, situation. Kind of paints her into a corner on this deal, but but again, I mean, uh, it, this is this is typical of the the kind of politics that that you would see from uh, Commissioner Calvey, and and I don't necessarily mean that in a derogatory way, but I mean it's just consistent with his. I mean, he's he's an over the top political actor in the state of Oklahoma, and. You know, whenever he threw that rock, that big rock at the end of the debate, you know, basically accusing your opponent of being complicit in a murder, that's a big deal. Um, and, 
you know, you're not ever going to hear him apologize for that. And he didn't back down. You're right. He didn't apologize, didn't back down. He doubled down yeah. because basically what he said after uh, this this revelation was that he, he was saying things like that the uh, that fraud was a, a crime against the, the uh, court. He went on to say that, uh, you know, that uh, Vicki Behenna must have known about that. It must have been part of a scheme, uh, to, uh, you know, on the part of uh, taking care of her client and really kind of just continued to kind of reel out there these uh these uh, allegations and statements that were very inflammatory. Uh, her, came, her campaign came back, you know, with the logical, uh, I think, response that one would expect, that she's a 30-year uh, career uh, prosecutor and attorney who's uh, certainly has a reputation that has been uh, uh, stellar. They used the word sterling, I think, uh, when, they were, when they were speaking. But uh, she's someone that people do know. I mean, she was, the, uh, uh, she was on the prosecution team with the Oklahoma City bombing. She uh, has been the executive director of the Innocence Project. She's not an unknown commodity in terms mm-hmm. of a, an attorney with a reputation uh, in Oklahoma County. So I think uh, the swipe they took back, interestingly enough, and they've done it more than once, is to make the point on, from their campaign side uh, of saying that uh, Kevin Calvey has never prosecuted a case in Oklahoma courts. I mean, mm-hmm. he 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 was a captain in the Army. Uh, he did pro- was a prosecutor of JAG in, in uh, Iraq, I believe it was. But uh, um, but these are the contrasts that if voters are paying attention and really trying to determine uh, that this is a race that they care about who the DA is after 16 years and a change getting ready to happen, uh, this kind of skirmish uh, elevates the campaign, certainly, and it's hard to get attention at a county-level race of any sort. The DAs mm-hmm. typically get a little more so than most courthouse races, but I think that uh, we probably haven't seen the last uh, exchange like this between these two campaigns between now and the election. I think it's kind of you know further proof of Vicky's reputation as a as a good ethical lawyer that we didn't see her put her client front and center in her response to Kevin Calvey's charges. You know, she's she's been accused of a crime here. I think it's a big deal to it accuse is a big deal. to accuse anybody of a crime, but especially to accuse counsel of a crime uh, as one lawyer to the other. I mean, that's that's a pretty big charge. And, you know, her best response was really to try to, if she really wanted to defend herself in the public eye here, would have been to put her clients in the front and center of this, throw her client under the bus. And she hasn't done that. And I think that that speaks to her integrity as a lawyer. Lawmakers held an interim study to look at ways to pay for an initiative referendum passed by voters in 2016. Under state question 781, the state was to put savings from reduced incarceration because of state question 780 into community rehabilitative programs. The Office of Management and Enterprise Services says $70 million should have been spent but it never happened. Neva, do you think studies like this will encourage lawmakers? Oh, it will have to. In fact, uh, you know, they they talked about this in the last session, uh, pulled the, the legislation, didn't go anywhere. They're now back at the drawing board, so to speak, during these interim studies where they're bringing the experts in from all sides and all vantage points and trying to really begin to uh, formulate a bill that will accomplish what uh, I think there seems to be growing consensus, that, there, they, that the need to create treatment centers across the state that will service all of the folks that uh, uh, are going to be diverted from uh, incarceration and have uh, these incredible, particularly mental health, uh, substance abuse, and other needs. So uh, these treatment 
programs are critical. But when you start talking about that, then from a lawmaker standpoint, you have to talk about the cost. I mean, because as you add programs, as you create uh, these systems, and as those systems have to interact with with, uh, all of the other agencies and all of the other uh, folks that would be involved, the, um, uh, the the price tag is something that uh, they have to get a handle on, and they need to do that before session starts and before uh, there, there's talk of budgets and before they really get into the nitty-gritty. So I think, uh, I think they're taking this seriously. I think it's timely. Uh, everyone knows that kind of the fuse is lit, and we need to be uh, in earnest uh, talking about and working working to come up with something, whether it's a, a start. No one uh, has the kind of magic formula by any stretch. It's a it's a case of just where do you start and let's get some forward motion and you know even the chairman of the committee said look I didn't support I didn't support these state questions but the but the people of Oklahoma passed them and it's our responsibility now to make sure that they happen right well and this was uh, part of a day long uh, of interim studies on criminal justice reform issues uh, in that committee and I think that this speaks to the fact that even though some folks in this election cycle may be trying to divide uh, criminal justice reform as, as a partisan issue, it really isn't. Uh, and so you saw Representative Melody Blancet from Tulsa, uh, who held a study that later in the afternoon in that same committee. She's been working closely with the chairman of that committee, J.J. Humphrey, on a number of issues. And politically, these folks couldn't really be more different. Uh, you know, a metropolitan Democrat, a rural Republican, one, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, I think J.J. Humphrey, uh, Chairman Humphrey, even mentioned that whenever he was talking about Damian Shade, who's the executive director of Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, who testified at that first interim study and said, we don't have an incarceration crisis in Oklahoma. We have a mental health crisis in Oklahoma. Um, Chairman Humphrey said, you know, Damian and I couldn't be more different in a lot of ways, but we can work together on this. And that's one of the things that I think is, is most exciting about criminal justice reform in Oklahoma is that you've got folks that can work together uh, and that, you know, it doesn't have to be a partisan issue. I think that, you know, Chairman Humphrey um, and working with Damian Shade, Oklahoma's criminal justice reform, Representative Blancet, all of those folks coming together is, is how we get real, real good, meaningful progress in the state. One of the things that Representative Blancet, I want to bring this up because we hear a lot about defunding the police uh, and I think one of the things that came out in Representative Blancet's study is that the police are already kind of defunded here. Um, and we heard from, we were talking about uh, in that interim study, data and data management and how we share data across or really don't share data across all of the different entities, you know, judicial, law enforcement, uh, you name it. We just don't share it the way that we should for policymakers and everybody to be able to make good decisions. Um, but one of the things that came out in that is how little these folks are getting paid and how they can't fill jobs. OSBI, you know, starting salaries for people working in their statistical analysis division, $36,000, $38,000 a year. I mean, they, you can't be competitive with that. The supervisor there, $56,000 a year. They had the sheriff from Logan County come in and he makes $56,000 a year. He said that. He said that, you know, he's one of the highest paid sheriffs in the state at $56,000 a year um, and that he had 14 open positions and that they are happy that they were able to just fill two of them. Um, and so we've we've got this situation where seventy million dollars in um, you know seven eighty one funding that needs to go to this treatment facility, but let lawmakers also need to. And I'll I'll say this as, as somebody who's been you know uh, critical uh, and wanted more accountability with law enforcement. If you want more accountability, you got to be able to recruit and retain uh, the personnel there in the first place. Um, you know that's and when you know Damian Shade from Oklahoma's for Criminal Justice Reform pointed out that. If state question 820 passes, you know, then the legislature is going to have a, a new, uh, uh, you know, 
pardon the pun, pot of money mm -hmm. uh, to, to look at uh, potentially, you know, tens, if, if not maybe hundreds of millions over the next several years for both funding the 781 fund, but also I think making some of these critical investments in, in shortages in uh, law enforcement around the state. And you have to look at it not only from the state perspective, but you have to look at it from 77 counties perspective, because one of the things I think that came out in, uh, in, in these uh, studies is the fact that there's such an incredible strain on county jails right now, mm -hmm. because you have, you have uh, folks that are being housed for um, what are misdemeanor offense, offenses now that previously would have been charged as felonies and would have gone over to the uh, Department of Corrections into the prison systems. So you have the pressure of that with the compounded issues of uh, just being able to retain adequate employees and have folks that are properly trained and, and in these environments. And then the mental health treatment uh, crisis that uh, uh, there this statistics can be as high as two-thirds of all Oklahomans uh, mm -hmm. uh, are in need of some type of mental health uh, services. Uh, whatever percentage you want to put on that, it's still so significant and so um, so vast that getting their arms around this in terms of being able to find some ability to make, m make forward motion on it is a real challenge. And it's going to take, as you say, Ryan, I mean, it takes, everyone's going to have to come to the table on this. And there's going to have to be give and take, and it can't be two or three more years of talking about it. This session, I think the pressure is going to be incredible to see something happen, and they're going to have some resources available that they uh, clearly are going to uh, uh, be talking about uh, how much of that is going to be allocated for these very issues that we're talking about. Six years state, since State Question 780 and 781 were passed, you know, passed in the same night that Donald Trump won all 77 counties in the state of Oklahoma, and not a single penny into that fund. I mean, that's that's a huge takeaway. And when you uh, and also, when you think about that period of time, 70 million in some people's minds seems like a paltry number given what the cost is going to be in scope of how to really address these issues, starting with just the, the idea of treatment centers, whether they're regionally or however they are set up uh, and funded. You're talking about an incredible expense far beyond $70 million and sustainable uh, to make that sustainable long term. I mean, it's a budget implication that has, uh, you know, a lot of conversation that will have to go behind it. Former Oklahoma State University President Jim Halligan died earlier this week. After serving at OSU from 1994 to 2002, Halligan spent eight years as Stillwater State Senator from 2008 through 2016. Ryan, what are your thoughts on the passing of Halligan? Well, I think it's it's always a sad day whenever, you know, you, you see these public servants that have given their life. And, you know, you, my thoughts and uh, uh, condolences to his family right now. I know that this is a, a difficult time, but, um, you know, I think that the, the senator and the president uh, of, of OSU, um, President Halligan, you know, I think it's a reminder to everyone in public service that, that the best thing that you can do is is make progress that is going to live beyond you. Um, and it, you, people people probably won't remember that he was the one, the architect of the, as the state impact story says, on uh, that the architect of the 2015 law that bars tobacco use on school and college campuses. You know, now everybody would just scratch their head at somebody. It's like, well, why? That was not barred before. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's that's a huge uh, that's a huge improvement in public health uh, and uh, on college campuses and, and school campuses around the state of Oklahoma. You know, it's you know, stuff like that. You know, th those kind of investments that you make in you know moving the state just a little bit forward, leaving it a little bit better than you than you found it, and knowing that 
you know, your name's not always going to be attached to it. That's the kind of, and I think that he was kind of that public servant who, you know, wasn't out there for, for the glory, wasn't out there to get his name out there, was just really wanted to invest in, especially his community in Stillwater. And he came in at a very difficult time in the life of the university. I mean, uh, it, uh, he was responsible for not only reversing the declining enrollment trends, mm-hmm. but he uh, he was able to really put the university at that time on a very positive track. He was successful in uh, more than $200 million, I believe it was, in construction projects. Uh, uh, he was there with the renovation of the uh uh, Gallagher Iba Arena. I mean, so he did things that people will remember him from a campus standpoint. He did things that people will, rem- will remember him from the legislative perspective of significant things that impacted us uh, now and in the future. And I think um, when you look at him as just a community leader, someone mm-hmm. who um, was was at the um, uh, at the helm at the university as president at a very difficult time in 2001 when the plane crash uh, mm-hmm. claimed the lives of those. 10 um, members of the Cowboys uh, basketball team and staffers, players, um, I think, uh, uh, and others. So he will, he will be remembered, and he is, the, he is the man who also is credited with the saying, we will remember, which mm-hmm. is on the, the, uh, etched on the uh, memorial on the Stillwater campus. So, um, you know, my, certainly I agree with you. Uh, uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to not only his wife of 65 years, and but uh, his uh, three sons and eight eight grandchildren, I believe four great-grandchildren. So yeah. he leaves a remarkable legacy, not only in higher education, but uh, uh, as a family man and certainly someone that will be remembered by many. And even for his public service, that family, you know, that's, that's the real legacy, I'm sure, for him. Yeah. Orion and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.